Welcome, everybody, to Dead Talk Live. I'm your host, Viz. I want to welcome all of our viewers. Hope you could spend the next hour with us as we discuss all things horror. I hope everyone is enjoying their day. want to welcome some of our viewers. Of course, we have Kat, who's joined us. It's good to see you back, Kat. We have Philip also joining us. Let's see who we have elsewhere. Uh, we have uh, Lagoon169 also joining us. Uh, Pascal is also with us. Like I said, I hope you guys are enjoying your day. Hope it's all, all is going well. Uh, welcome to Philip and Viviana, who's just joined us. So uh, let's see what's been going on. Uh, I do apologize for the late start times, but it's all going to come into focus very soon. Uh, as you guys know, I'm getting ready to make a big announcement in regards to our show. The news is going to be going public, uh, hopefully any day now, and I'll be free to uh, announce it and share with you guys what I have, I have been unable to share for almost two months now, and I'll be glad when that is out in the open. Want to welcome Eric, who's also with us, saying, yo, 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 <laughs> welcome, Eric. Hope you're doing well. Welcome to Tina, who's also joining us. So let's get right to it. Let's get to some horror news. And our topic today is, uh, I love our topic for today. We're going to be talking about tragic horror villains. And basically the question is, can a villain, horror or not, actually have a tragic story? I think absolutely. Absolutely. And we have seen so many uh, antagonists in films and TV shows that have become antagonists because of A, the world that they live in, or B, you can go through the nature versus nurture, bleh, nurture experience and say they were nurtured into becoming bad people. But we're going to be diving into that later on after we get through the news. So it should be interesting and fascinating. And I would love to hear your guys' input on the topic. Because uh, this topic can go either way. You can either agree with it or completely disagree with it. So we'll get to that in a bit. Let's see what we have on the news front. So first thing is we have is Hulu... An A24's quote-unquote false positive delivers some pregnancy-inspired horror in the first trailer. And I'll tell you what, trailers have been dropping left and right since yesterday's episode. From the trio of Netflix Fear Street films to the second season of Paramount Plus's Evil, the summer of streaming horror continues. The latest addition to this already chill-induced list is Hulu and A24's upcoming False Positive, which hits the streaming site on June 25th, so a little less than a month away. And Paramount Plus, for those of you that don't know, used to be called CBS All Access. CBS is owned by Paramount. Uh, they've combined... Uh, the streaming platforms together to create Paramount Plus. And they just answered a question of mine as to where one of my favorite shows from last season went, and that would be Evil on CBS. I now know that Evil is available on Paramount Plus. 
So I was a CBS All Access uh, subscriber. Now I'm, everybody got transferred over to Paramount+. Plus. So I was really missing this show. And I don't know how many of you guys watched the uh, premiere season of Evil on CBS. It's really good. Would I call it horror? Yeah, but not the kind of horror that you would expect. It uh, follows a priest, a uh, psychologist, and a tech expert for recording and trying to debunk uh, theories of demonic possession. But this show is all about those three because they are brought together with three very different perspectives. The uh, priest believes very much in demonic possession he goes around visiting people to see if there is something supernatural going on in their lives, something unholy. Then you have the psychologist to rule out any mental illnesses. And then you have the tech, who is a huge skeptic in the group, uh, as is the psychologist, or was at the beginning of the show, of the first season, but her thoughts are definitely shifting when we got to the season finale of season one. So if you guys have not checked out Evil, it is available on Paramount+. Plus. And if you have access to Paramount+, Plus, I highly recommend that you guys go ahead and check it out. Khaleesi says it is an awesome show. Very entertaining. Don't expect any kind of blood, guts, gore, or any of that. But you will see some scary demonic possessions and <clears throat> to go a little bit more about this show there is an antagonist in the show who is actually a demon in uh human form he's a lawyer uh, <laughs> uh good choice to pick a demon love lawyers don't get don't get offended but anyway the the demon takes on the form of uh of uh a regular person, a lawyer, but his whole mission uh, on this earth is to get people to show their evil side, you know, just like Hannibal Lecter. Hannibal Lecter would love to take his patients who are having, you know, trouble, troublesome thoughts, and he would, in his own very passive way, encourage them to act out their thoughts they usually involve violence so, th so this antagonist on the show evil is not that different from hannibal lecter in that aspect uh, uh, marco says it's played by the amazing michael emerson uh khaleesi also writes i loved how they worked in supernatural into video gaming absolutely so continuing on with this article and as you can see from the trailer below, nothing is scarier than the unknown, especially if it's living inside you. The movie revolves around Lucy and Adrian, played by Broad City's Ileana Glazier and The Leftovers' Justin Theroux, a couple who have been trying to get pregnant for months, but after they meet Dr. Hindle, played by the awesome Piers Brosnan, former James Bond, uh, die another day, a fertility doctor that managed to get pregnant with a baby girl. 
However, as in other films in this particular genre of pregnancy-related horror, Lucy starts to suspect that there may be more to her pregnancy than meets the ultrasound, and that the sinister vibes under uh, Hindle's charming exterior might have something to do with it. So before continuing, let's watch this trailer. So, you two need a little help. I will give you the best possible chance of getting pregnant. How does that sound? That sounds great. Here's Browning was one of my favorite jobs. My career, my kids, my old man by my side. Who are you calling old? You are 100% pregnant. <laughs> right now. Welcome to the family. How are you? A little crazy. I am seeing things. Honey, me too. I'm having the wildest mommy brain lately. I don't I don't think it's mommy brain. I think Dr. Kendall did something. I think they're in on it. In on what? Dr. Handel gives me a bad feeling. I want to see someone more natural. There's a lot of voodoo out there. We just want to make sure that you get the best possible care. Confront whatever it is that's blocking you from you. I'm not crazy. They're trying to make me think I'm crazy. Just push. Hey, this pregnancy shit is no joke, right? Yeah. Okay, it's really scary. All right, Brilliant. Nice, very nice. June twenty fifth on Hulu. And just like I said during the trailer, Piers Brosnan, I'm a huge Piers Brosnan fan, going all the way back to his Remington Steel days, but he is by far my favorite James Bond. Now, a lot of people out there will say Sean Connery. Uh, you know, Sean Connery's amazing, first off. But I used to be a big, uh, you know, I am a big James Bond fan, and there have been a lot of brilliant people that have played James Bond. Uh, but Pierce Brosnan, I don't know. He was like born to play James Bond. And I wish there were he, he did more movies as James Bond than what he did. So anyway, continuing on. Sophia Bush from The Hitcher and Gretchen Maul, The Twilight Zone, also star in The Project, which is directed by John Lee from The Shivering Truth. Not only did he co-write the film with Glazer, but the pair are also producing it, along with Jonathan, Jonathan Wang from Swiss Army Man. A24 is the studio behind the film. False Positive is due to come out on June 25th. And A24 is uh, one of those production studios that has really 
uh, grown to some serious prominence in the Hollywood industry with uh, some really successful releases over the last several years. And they are becoming really big in the horror industry, especially. So definitely something to watch out for there. And this movie involving pregnancy brings me back to the movie that I've been talking about the last couple of days, the horror movie Son, who, uh, who, who's the writer of Son, uh, was supposed to be our guest this Friday. He is going to be joining us on Tuesday. Now, he is located in Central uh, Europe, and uh, the uh, show on Tuesday is going to start at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. It'll be 9 p.m. Uh, in the evening for him, so make sure to tune in for that. Uh, it's going to be uh, an amazing interview. And just looking over here, let's see, breaking news, Amazon Prime announced they are doing a 10-episode series entitled Day of the Dead. It circles around six survivors in the early stages of the zombie apocalypse. Well, there you guys have it. That's breaking news. Amazon Prime is doing a series titled Day of the Dead. I wonder how much they have to fork out for the, the naming rights for that. And of course, it's going to be a zombie, a zombie show focusing around six survivors in the early stages of the zombie apocalypse. So there you guys have it. I want to thank Marco, our executive producer, for letting me know that as we're live on the air right now. So can't wait to see that as well. Uh, Eric writes, that one I will be all over. Same here, Eric. Same here. So... Netflix's Thai horror movie, Ghost Lab, induces tonal whiplash through paranormal obsession. And we've talked about this before. Ghost hunting and seeking tangible proof of the afterlife is a frequent motif in paranormal horror. It's one of the most prominent, unknowable questions to life, which means the fictional possibilities are endless. Seeking and acquiring proof of life after death becomes the driving force for the two leads in the Thai horror movie Ghost Lab. While it quickly transcends a familiar setup, its massive shifts through uh, tone and narrative induce jarring whiplash. Young doctors we work together, sorry, we and Gla work together at a hospital, but their friendship goes beyond further than just a working relationship. They are an unlikely pair. We practically lives at the hospital to care for his long comatose mother. Gla is, uh, is the extrovert in a happily committed relationship with Mai when the friends encounter a terrifying ghost during a late shift. It sparks the pursuit of proof in the name of science. Experimental leads to reckless obsession, and the quest becomes dangerous. Directed by Puwan, I'm going to butcher this name, Parij Tupanya, hope I didn't butcher that too badly, who co-wrote the script with uh, Vazdorn and Tassipan, Ghost Lab begins as a horror comedy, Gla and We trade lighthearted pranks, which establishes their bond, 
Wee's emotional stakes come in the form of his devotion to of his devotion to an unresponsive, sickly mother. One creepy encounter with the ghost of a horrifically burned patient later, the pair begin their series of experimentations. The first act follows an established mold. The friends use cameras, temperature, and various ghost hunting tools to document their finds, complete with all kinds of spooky scenes, all set within the atmospheric, atmospheric hospital. Once through all those familiar beats, though, the narrative shifts with a shocking event. It marks the first jarring change in tone, and horror comedy gets sidelined for heavy drama. Obsession sets in and causes a fracture. Ghost Lab is less about paranormal science and more about superstition and emotional devastation for a long stretch. Curiosity gets replaced with suffocating guilt and contrasting philosophies. Early scares get all but forgotten. Despite its nearly two-hour runtime, Ghost Lab forgoes proper build-up in the massive left-field turns in Wee and Glaw's arc. Both make illogical choices that remove rooting interest by the third act. As likable characters become awful, Wee and Glaw's baffling arcs muddy what exactly it is that this film is trying to say. Uh... Let's see, uh, uh, I'm going to butcher the name again. Purji Panya uh, knows horror and crafts a couple of effective early scare scenes. One character directly references Shudder, and The Shining's Room 237 gets a mention, but the horror gets left behind in the attempt to explore science versus faith in such a dramatic way. Ghost Lab. Uh, never entirely forgets its ghost, but they take on a different meaning in the ongoing evolution of the partnership. It's a vastly different movie from where it begins, and despite a heavier horror climax, the genre elements receive diminished returns. Ghost Lab dabbles in horror and horror comedy, but it prefers to linger in drama for extended periods. It's less interested in the paranormal and far more intrigued by the consequences of we and Gla's pursuit. That's an admirable departure from the norm, but the burst of high melodrama and disjointed narratives leaps make for a very confusing viewing experience. That's a little disappointing because we played the trailer on this movie uh, several weeks ago. And it really did look interesting. Now, please keep in mind, this is one person's opinion. Uh, critics are called critics for a reason. You know, so take it with a grain of salt is what I say. Uh, let's see what else we got for you today. Spiral. This is actually very, very interesting. Uh, the book of Saw, Spiral, the new movie with Chris Rock, uh, has surpassed the Saw franchise past one billion dollars so all the saw movies and now into spiral which is from the book of saw all the movies combined have 
uh, surpassed $1 billion in revenue. And what does that mean? It means it is a very successful franchise. Want to welcome Zoe, who's just joined us. Uh, Megan is also with us as well. So it stars Chris Rock, Samuel Jackson. The newest film in the series follows the police hunt for a copycat inspired by the legacy of the Jigsaw Killer, who sets traps for his victims. Now, the original Saw debuted in 2004 uh, with seven annual releases before a revival in 2017. Created by the overly, wonderfully talented James Wan and Lee Wanell, who also feature as it features as an executive producer on Spiral, the series was named the most successful horror movie series in film history. Wow. And this is by the Guinness World Records, World Book of Records back in 2010. That's something definitely note right there. Now, uh, the original Saw earned a massive $103 million worldwide from a $1.2 million budget. That in Hollywood terms means big return on your investment. <laughs> it was advertised with the witty tagline, Do You Dare See Saw? Since then, every installment, with the exception of 2009's Saw 6, crossed the $100 million barrier globally while keeping production budgets below $20 million. Saw 3 remains the highest-grossing entry, taking in $164 million worldwide. And that just makes you appreciate even more a movie like Paranormal Activity. Paranormal Activity, I'm just talking about the first one, the original Paranormal Activity. Of course, that went on to be a very successful franchise, but the original movie was made on a $10,000 budget, and it grossed in just under $190 million worldwide. I mean, that's just damn impressive. Uh, of course, they made plenty of sequels. For me, I love the original. Part 2 was good as well, but I really loved Paranormal Activity Part 3. I really loved that movie. When we go back to the girls' childhood, that movie was scary as hell. Uh, you know, where we got to see how the demon Toby uh, introduces himself to uh, the, the, the girls when they were much younger. We see the involvement of the grandmother and how she was instrumental into bringing the demon into uh, her family's life. And she did it. She basically made a deal with the devil. She wanted uh, fortune, uh, success, and she made a deal with the devil uh, or with his demon that we know as Toby. And Toby gave her what she wanted, but in exchange, she had to basically turn over the first male-born child in the family. And there you guys have it. That's the whole premise that doesn't get revealed until the third movie in the Paranormal Activity universe. So if you haven't watched it, I totally spoiled it for you. But still, if you haven't watched it, 
please go ahead and watch it. You will not be disappointed. So, this is kind of interesting. The Mummy is the pinnacle of action horror. Now, I got to be straight up honest up front here. I have never been a big fan of The Mummy, even going back to the original. But the Brandon Fraser version was really good. You know, uh, it was it was not bad. It was in the 90s. So 1999's The Mummy captures the perfect blend of adventure and horror, and many factors help make it the pinnacle of the action horror genre. And action horror is a subgenre that you really don't A, see very often, and B, it doesn't get a lot of attention. Uh, because the action usually overshadows the horror part in an action horror movie. Now, when speaking about the Universal Classic Monsters, a few modern adaptations have managed to succeed in the same way 1999's The Mummy has. Uh, even its 2017 reboot, which was supposed to kick off a new shared universe, failed to reanimate the same excitement that Steven Summers' film has, but multiple factors aided in creating the best action horror film to date. One of the main reasons for The Mummy's mass appeal is the story's simplicity. The premise remains as simple as the 1932 original, where Boris Karloff's uh, Amhotep, Amhotep, awakens thousands of years after being mummified. While alive, he kills and terrifies those in his way on his quest to reunite with his long-lost love. Now, uh, what that 1999 remake does is take the same story and inject an Indiana Jones-style adventure into the mix. The film features action, scares, treasure hunting, and a pyramid filled with traps that would make Indy think twice before going inside. How many of you guys out there have watched the 1999 The Mummy? God, I can't believe it's been that long already. It's 22 years. Damn, but I remember watching this movie. I saw it in the theaters. Uh, it, in, it reinvigorated my interest in the whole Mummy franchise. But they're right. Ever since then... Uh, you know, there was the whole Tom Cruise version, which is what they were talking about. That was just all Tom Cruise action, you know, right there. Uh, the scene that just immediately pops out in my head from that reboot is when they're in the plane with the coffin of the mummy. And of course, things go haywire on that airplane. The Brandon Fraser version, which is the picture that we have up right here from 1999, it was a really good mix, but it was mostly action. Even though the original story of The Mummy is meant to be a horror movie. So they took this and added just a lot more action to it. Lisa is saying that she loved The Mummy. It was a great movie. It was definitely a great movie. Want to welcome Amami, who has joined us. Welcome, Thank you to all the new people who have just joined us. So what else do we have for you? Let's see. Oh, this is about the Qu A Quiet Place. We have a review on A Quiet Place Part 2. 
the long-awaited uh, sequel to uh, the to John Krasinski's, uh, who did A Quiet Place Part Two, the long-awaited sequel. The chance to make a sequel to one's own film is a gift of freedom for a director, a chance to expand ideas, reveal latent motives, and push major themes in new directions. That freedom doesn't seem to have tempted John Krasinski in his direction of A Quiet Place Part 2, the second installment in what's shaping up uh, to be a franchise. Instead, with a self-imposed sense of duty and some intermittent cleverness, he follows the rules that he set down for himself in the original film from 2018. The cramped results are all the more disheartening, given that Krasinski, who co-wrote the original, is the sole credited screenwriter of the sequel. It's hard to detect any, uh, sorry, anything more personal about this installment, except perhaps precisely its sense of duty. It's a work of polished and skilled professionalism for better and worse. A Quiet Place 2 begins with a wryly deceptive touch, an empty town in which a pickup truck comes to a desperate lurching stop, outbursts Krasinski in a rush, his character Lee Abbott was killed off in the earlier film, but the opening sequence labeled Day One uh, in the title card is a snippet of a prequel. The town is quiet because its noisy people are crowding the stands at a Little League baseball game, for which Lee is hurriedly gathering snacks. The movie was filmed in upstate New York. When Lee rushes over to the playing field, his family is there, his wife Evelyn, played by Emily Blunt, their daughter Reagan, played by Millicent Simmons, their toddler son Bo, and their son Marcus, who's in the game but isn't much of a player. While taking a called third strike, Marcus looks into the sky and sees fire and smoke. Then everyone notices and flees, and by the time they they crowd the town's main street, the monsters have arrived. Scaly, dark, fast-moving, spider-like, yet reptilian giants who are bent on slaughter and rely on the sound to track their victims. Cut ahead to day 474, the day after the one on which the first film ended, the surviving members of the Abbott family, uh, Evelyn, Reagan, Marcus, and a newborn infant, are struggling to evade an infestation of monsters in their vicinity. Evelyn heads to their barn, which is flooded and on fire, and collects some needed supplies, notably an oxygen tank, so that the baby can be kept in a basket. Any cry smothered while breathing with a mask. Ooh. But, with Lee dead, the family's leader is now Reagan, who displays precocious practical skills. She not only stands on the roof and notes a fire in the distance, the mark of another survivor, but also uses a compass and a map to figure out how to get there. Reagan is deaf 
And I'm so glad that she's the leader. She was the most interesting character and uses uh, cochlear implants, which play a major role in the plot and in her inventive inspiration. Having discovered in the first film that feedback screeching from the implant stops the creatures in their tracks uh, and retracts their head armor, rendering them vulnerable to a gunshot or an axe blow, she now prepares for the journey in the sequel by gathering a speaker and a mic to use as weapons. But before the family goes, the sequel revisits the money shot of A Quiet Place, the moment in the earlier film that sealed the deal with the viewers, condensing the entire movie story and tone into a single image. Excuse me. It's a scene in which Evelyn, walking barefoot in order to tread quietly, accidentally steps on a nail, grievously puncturing her soul while she forces herself not to scream. The nail in the foot is the film's iconic moment of limbic horror, like the eye slice in Louis Brunel's An Andalusian Dog. It leaps from the fabric of a quiet place and sparks a more intense and affecting horror than does the monster's menace. In the sequel, that moment is referenced in a bandage wrapping Evelyn's foot and spotlighted, essentially in visual quotation marks. In another scene on the same staircase early on day 474, Meanwhile, Krasinski builds another early scene around a new object of mutilation. To his credit, he doesn't deploy it for mere gore. However, in attempting the move a second time around, he delivers an effective fright without the same primal sense of shock. The family's risky barefoot journey takes them to an abandoned still mill that's now inhabited by a former neighbor named Emmett, whose ferociously contrived means of survival, including the dangerous use of an airtight former blast furnace as his ultimate inner sanctum, can scarcely scarcely accommodate the abbots. This seems a lot more than a review. This seems more like a scene-by-scene synopsis of what the second movie is going to bring us. Uh, there again, Reagan's intuition and knowledge come to the, fo- uh, to the forefront. She picks up on the signal of another distant survivor and plans to guide the family to its source. When the urgent need for supplies forces the Abbots to separate, Krasinski relies on the primordial device of cross-cutting between the various fields of action to ratchet up the suspense. Yet throughout the characters remain ciphers, reduced to their wiles and their battles. The result is a pared-down thriller of little significance. The characters of A Quiet Place Part Two are even less well-defined than they were in the first installment, and their need to remain silent is hardly responsible. What little dialogue there is reflects no interest in character, Man, this guy's getting mean here. A better filmmaker might have imagined the verbal thoughts that fill the characters' minds 
to reveal their inclinations, idiosyncrasies, dreams, and memories, and figured out how to include them in the film, whether on soundtrack or, or in text on the screen. So, the guy who wrote this is not a big Krasinski fan. Those are some harsh words right there. Very harsh. Krasinski's failure to do so, or his mere disinclination, is more than a directorial omission. It's indicative of a fundamental lack of invention, a lack of curiosity regarding both his own characters and the power of cinema itself. Damn. Ouch. That hurts. Uh, that, that, that hurts. That's, that's, uh, uh, those are some cheap shots. If you ask for my opinion, uh, he could have said it, uh, in a much different way without without taking those cheap shots. So either way, this is one person's opinion. Every other review that we've read about uh, Quiet Place Part 2 has given it glowing reviews. So again, as with any critic, please take this with a grain of salt. It's just one person's opinion. So let's keep moving on. Uh, just looking at the time. We're 37 minutes in. Here, here's a perfect example. Here's a picture of A Quiet Place Part 2 with the headline, 15 Great Horror Movie Sequels That Will Scare You a Second or a Third Time Around. So let's just take a quick look at this list and see what we have. Uh, all right, Halloween 4. The Return of Michael Myers. I very much enjoyed Halloween 4. Uh, Halloween 2. The original Halloween 2, 1981. Uh, Halloween 2018. Another great one. It's funny. They have Halloween 2018 and the original Halloween 2 right next to each other. What's funny is Halloween 2018 is... Uh, you know, John Carpenter telling us to ignore the 1981 Halloween 2. And then let's take this new one, Halloween 2018, and make that the sequel to the original film. They're both amazing movies. Uh, 28 Weeks Later. Definitely agree with that one. A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3, Dream Warriors. That was pretty good. Uh, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4. The Dream Master, 1988, Dawn of the Dead. Oh, God, when it comes to sequels in a uh, film trilogy like uh, Night, Dawn, and Day of the Dead. I mean, Dawn of the Dead has to go down as one of the best all-time zombie movies in history. Uh, Night of the Living Dead was amazing, the original. Of course, Dawn was absolutely amazing. Day of the Dead was phenomenal as well. Uh, Evil Dead 2, Dead by Dawn. And I have said this before about Evil Dead 2. I'm going to repeat it for anybody that's new and is watching me for the first time. I saw Evil Dead 2 in the movies back in 1987. And I went into that theater at the age of 13, fully expecting to see the same kind of, you know, horror that I saw in the original Evil Dead. I did not appreciate that Evil Dead 2, Dead by Dawn, 
went in a completely different direction, uh, becoming more of a comedy, you know, at the time. Uh, so I did walk out of that theater at the age of 13 being disappointed. Now, as the years have passed, I have learned to appreciate Evil Dead 2 a lot more for what the director and the filmmakers of the movie wanted it to be. So, yeah, I appreciate the movie now a hell of a lot more than I did that night walking out of the theater watching it for the first time. So let's see, what else do we have here? Army of Darkness, again, 1992. Uh, Whispering Corridors 2, 1999. I have not heard of this movie. Uh, number four, Scream 4, 2011. Number three, Paranormal Activity 3, which is what I uh, mentioned earlier on in the show. Uh, number two is the 1935 Bride of Frankenstein. And number one, Aliens. Awesome. I love the sequel to Aliens. And... Um, Aliens is most definitely an action horror movie, as opposed to the first one, way more scarier, not knowing what they're dealing with, uh, some iconic scenes in the original Alien movie. The second one, uh, we knew they were going back to that planet, uh, Ripley is just cannot believe that they colonized that planet. Uh, full of the eggs of the alien so they bring her along to see why the colony went silent it's a huge action flick uh great stars uh, uh paxton of course sigourney weaver we get to meet the queen alien at the, that does battle with uh ripley sigourney weaver's character at the end of the movie i loved aliens you know a lot of people I don't want to say a lot, but there are several people that I have spoken to who did not quite like Aliens. And maybe they had the same misconception that I had walking into the theater uh, watching Evil Dead Part 2. Maybe they were expecting a, a continuation of Alien. But for me, Aliens, uh, as opposed to Evil Dead Part 2, did stick more with the original, but with a lot more action. So... That's my two cents on that. Let's see, what else do we have? What else do we have? Emma Stone, obviously they saw some evil horror in me. It's a quote to play Cruella. All right. Disney never considered anyone other than Emma Stone to play the most extravagant and charismatic villain in its repertoire. Cruella de Vil in the new film about the iconic baddie's life. I genuinely don't know. That's a good question. I have no idea. I wouldn't naturally put me together with her, but obviously they saw some evil horror in me, said the actress during a video call with EFE upon being asked about why she was the studio's only choice for playing Cruella. After the success of Maleficent, Disney wanted to continue exploring the origins of its evil characters and thought that just a Warner Brothers, just as Warner Brothers did with Joker, the character of Cruella, Cruella de Vil from the 1961 animated film 
101 Dalmatians enjoyed the same ability to create the empathy and rejection needed to make a successful feature film. The result is Cruella, which hits theaters and Disney Plus on Friday, a film that reviews the life of the villain from the time she was a little girl, long before she became obsessed with having an overcoat made of Dalmatian puppy fur. And if they wanted a villain, you put someone out there who just really has it in for dogs. <laughs> That's my opinion. All right. Uh, we have a little bit of time before we get to our topic. Again, this is another article about Emily Blunt. And basically the headline is, Emily Blunt Horror Performances Deserve Awards Love, Including a Quiet Place Star, Millicent Simmons. So, again, this person loves the, you know, uh, likes the movie, but, you know, points out Emily Blunt performance in the movie as being uh, deserving of at least of a nomination for an award. Ten scariest found footage horror movies streaming on Tubi that you've never seen. Now, Tubi is a streaming service, obviously, that is really ramping up its uh, library, and it's getting a lot more attention of recently. Let's quickly go through this list. Number 10 is Savage Land, 2015. Number 9 is Shopping Tour, 2012. Number 8 is Hollow, 2011. Number 7 is Bigfoot, The Lost Coast Tapes, 2012. Evil Things from 2009, Butterfly Kisses from 2018, uh, Followed 2015, uh, Cruiser 2016, The Conspiracy from uh, 2012, and number one is Final Prayer from 2013. Now I'm sure a lot of us have never heard of these movies, but if you go to these uh, places like Tubi, you will find some really great hidden gems that you have never heard of before and most definitely never seen before. So it's definitely worth checking them out. It's absolutely worth checking it out. So let's just put the news aside for now and let's get on with today's topic. We are talking about tragic horror movie villains. There's nothing like an enduring and tragic horror movie villain with sympathetic villains overtaking such genres like comic book movies and dramas. It's time to address some of the more tragic horror movie villains with a great number of villains that play on the heartstrings when brought into proper perspective. So, Francis Dollarhide, the Tooth Fairy, uh, Manhunter, Red Dragon, played by Tom Noonan, and Ralph Fiennes, this sinister killer was the result of years of systematic abuse to a man with a freak on his back. Was an unwanted child, his birth mother put him up for adoption, and was reluctantly raised and abused by his grandmother. He was mocked due to his facial deformity, contributing with the abuse to cause him to develop psychopathic tendencies. Later being jailed after a breaking and entering was given the opportunity to join the army 
which he was later honorably discharged. His trauma from his grandmother's abuse to being abused by his mother and stepfamily, he developed a fascination and a delusional personality based on a painting by William Blake. Now, Jason Voorhees. Now, you would not put Jason on a sympathetic killer list, but we read an article not too long ago that did actually place why Jason could have some sympathy towards him in regards to A, how he drowned as a child, and him to avenging the death of his mother. So, from the Friday the 13th franchise, he's a killer with a face and a kill count only a mother could love. Battled with mental disability, suffering from what we now would call Down syndrome, as well as looks to be Proteus syndrome. Lost his mother after she thought he was dead, never getting the chance to reunite with her, leaving him feeling abandoned. Uh, was a victim of the camp counselor's lack of attention, having drowned while they were busy having sex. And as we all know, all of us who have seen the Friday the 13th movies, uh, him drowning, Pamela Voorhees, uh, the killer from the first Friday the 13th movie, blamed the counselors for his death and went on to seek revenge on anybody that had even attempted to open up Camp Crystal Lake again. Now, the big question with that is that, well, Jason obviously did not drown. So, the question that never has really been answered is, where was he hiding? Why was he hiding from his mother all this time that she thought he was dead? That's a that's an, a a question that we're never going to get an answer to. You know, it goes to, you know, to enjoying any kind of uh, fictional movie, horror or not, you got to put a little bit of, you know, reality disbelief in there to fully enjoy it. But it's a lingering question, but one that there really is no way of answering. Now, another person that we have on the list is Leatherface. Of course, from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Everyone's favorite chainsaw-wielding Texan. Uh, possibly suffers from undiagnosed... Um, you could put any number of disorders. Uh, psychopathy, uh, you know, sociopath. Definitely an introvert. Social, socially awkward and on and on and on. He was the result of inbreeding, which caused further mental disability as well as being mentally and physically abused throughout his life. Basically, his whole family was a big, they're nut jobs. And you can even argue that, yeah, the guy wore the skin of his victims, but in a lot of ways, maybe it's because it's his lack of ability to speak. You could argue that he might have been one of the sanest ones in that damn family. So... Next on the list, we have John Kramer, Jigsaw. Now, played by Tobin Bell, Jigsaw is, you can definitely put him on the sympathetic uh, plane uh, for many reasons. Cancer patient who was denied the possibility of survival af after a mess up from a hospital, hospital, 
hospital orderly who he later forgives, lost his child to a trauma-induced miscarriage, deeply emotionally and psychologically wounded him. And that's that famous scene where his wife is walking into a building and out comes running somebody who I believe robbed a building, slams the door up against his pregnant wife who was near delivery, uh, inducing her to miscarry. That is what sealed the deal with uh, John to become Jigsaw. And he took it upon himself to set people on the right path of life and to repent for all their sins that they have done, of course, in his way. Through his very elaborate traps, where only those who are willing to make some of the ultimate sacrifices have the chance of walking out of there alive. Now, Hannibal Lecter. This is going to be controversial. Of course, Anthony Hopkins was the most iconic and sinister to play the role, Hannibal proves that every monster has a past, uh, was forced, forced fed his younger sister, Misha, who was his only surviving immediate family member, suffered uh, for years in a boy's home where other students mocked and belittled him while living in his former home. His uncle died, leaving him alone, causing him to form a bond with his maternal aunt who later forces him to abandon her. Even with all those reasons there, I have no doubt that Hannibal Lecter is not a product of his environment. I think, well, first of all, he's brilliant. He's a genius. And instead of using his smarts for good, he's also a psychopath. He's insane. He's a psychopath, sociopath. Put whatever label you want on him. Uh, he, and he's also a cannibal. So, besides those reasons, there's really not much sympathy in regards to what Hannibal Lecter has done throughout his uh, evil deeds of a life. So, Jack Torrance, The Shining, you can sum him up very simply. He was not the best husband and father to begin with. He takes his family to the Overlook Hotel to where he can supposedly finish writing his book. Of course, the Overlook Hotel is haunted. He's not the greatest of people to begin with. It very easily overtakes him, and we all know how that ends. Now, Frankenstein's monster. Technically, it's not alive. It's a reanimated corpse, uh, reanimated by Dr. Frankenstein. Also, we have Lawrence Talbot, the Wolfman get bitten by a werewolf, you become a werewolf. Norman Bates. Now, Norman Bates is absolutely a product of his environment. I don't believe Norman Bates was born a psycho, just like the movie is titled. Norman Bates is the product of an over-controlling mother. Uh, that's why he calls his mother mother. He keeps his her dead corpse around. Uh, you know, loves really nobody else besides his mother. And again, that's from years of being raised by an over-controlling mother. And when she died, he basically snapped. He didn't know how to live his life after his mother passed away. 
kept her dead corpse and he took on the identity of his dead mother to keep her memory going. Now, just to finish off this list, we have Kevin Wendell Crumb, played by James McAvoy from the infamous Split movies. Uh, very sympathetic. I'd, that's why we left him for last. Because if you're going to put a, a villain who you can have some sympathy and has a really tragic backstory, I would definitely put him as number one. He is, uh, first of all, James McAvoy is a brilliant actor. And he brought uh, Kevin to life in such an amazing way. He suffers from dissociative identity disorder, what he has called uh, the horde. There are dozens and dozens of personalities that would, that live within his brain, and they have all been uh, brought into being as his brain's way of protecting himself from the abuse that he had to endure in his early part of life. He does not want to be... Uh, the majority of his personalities are not bad. But you have two or three that are just flat out evil as they will do anything they can to protect Kevin, even though it's the same person. So I'm sure a lot of you have seen the Split movies. And then, of course, we have Glass as well. All brilliantly done and topped off by brilliant performances by James McAvoy. Of course, you got Bruce Willis in there, Samuel L. Jackson and whatnot. Anyway, guys, that's all the time that we have for tonight. Just some scheduling notes. It is Memorial Day weekend coming up. There will not be a Dead Talk Live this Friday or Monday. Friday, we are traveling to North Carolina for the Carolina Fear Fest. We're going to be streaming uh, all weekend long, uh, hopefully talking with uh, all the guests that are going to be there. We're going there as press. It's going to be a fun, fascinating weekend. So keep an eye on our sites for updates and live streaming events. I want everybody to stay safe. I'll be back with you again tomorrow to wrap up this week's worth of episodes. And we'll be back again on Tuesday with our special guest, writer Ivan Kavanaugh from the movie Sun. Stay safe and stay walking. Good night.